in the 1930s, in the 1930s, J.R.R. Tolkien wrote the book, The Hobbit. Now, I could ask you all to raise your hands and see how many of you all have actually read the book, The Hobbit, but oh, Sue's, Sue's willing and able. But I don't want to do that, and here's why, because I don't want to feel ashamed of you all if you have not. And if you say, well, I've seen the movie, it's not the same. In the movie, the dwarves act like they're in the Matrix, spinning around and doing karate and stuff. It's like Bruce Lee meets, I don't know, Lord of the Rings. It's kind of odd. But anyway, the book The Hobbit came out in the 1930s. I can't remember the exact date when it came out. But that was sort, sort of a prologue, if you will. It was a prologue to this bigger type of uh, story called the uh, Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit was. And so as you read The Hobbit, you go through there and you start learning different characters. You learn about Bilbo Baggins, and you learn about this other character, this, uh, this golem, if you will, that has this magic ring, if you will. And you hear about all these dwarfs that are doing things and how they're, how they're going on this quest, and they're going for this quest for this treasure with this dragon at the end. And all of this is part of a prologue. We love prologues. Now, sometimes prologues are written after the main story, right? But in this case, the prologue was written before. Now, there's even a prologue to the prologue, if you will, if you actually go into the, uh, the anthology of J.R.R. Tolkien's books. But the prologue is important. The prologue gives us a lot of information about the characters that, we're, that we care about. We find out, for instance, if you just read The Lord of the Rings, where did this ring come from, right? Where did this, who is this Bilbo Baggins? You know, is he just this old guy with this fancy ring that somehow was given to him? Who is this Gandalf character, this wizard? The prologue matters. Well, like in Lord of the Rings and like The Hobbit, the gospel according to Mark also has a prologue. And that prologue begins in chapter 1, verse 1. I'm going to pray, and we're going to begin our, begin our several-week series in the gospel according to Mark. Would you join me? Father, we thank you and we love you, and we ask you to be with us as we walk through this passage, Father. We ask that you would be with us as we Make our way through the text of Mark, through these 16 chapters, Father. We hope, we hope that you would help us divide them correctly and understand them, grasp them, and learn from them. And Father, today as we walk through your prologue, I pray that we would learn something about Christ that we didn't already know. And Father, many of us have read this prologue many, many times, and it's information that's not new to us. So Father, I pray that as we read it this time, that it would, we'd read it in a new light, and that it would cause us to worship. Lord, we love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Scott, are the pads still going? I hear them in my ear. There we go. <laughs> yeah, I have very good hearing, unless my wife is asking me to do something. Okay, so the prologue, Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 13. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to break this prologue up into three pieces, and we're going to walk through this in these different sections. And what I want you to see here 
is that we're going to see how Christ was not a surprise. Okay, Jesus was not a surprise. Anyone who had ears to hear or eyes to see when Christ came should not have been a surprise. Now, here's, here's the issue is that when we read the Old Testament and we read about the Messiah, we read Isaiah, we read about what's to come, and then we go into the New Testament, all, oftentimes we will say that the people, the Israelites, the Jews, they were expecting the Messiah to come as this King David who was going to come and just conquer, right? And we kind of give them a pass when, we find, when they find out, oh, he's not that. He's this shepherd king. He is the, the son of a carpenter. He's, he's humble. He's, he's gentle and lowly. He actually describes himself in that way. And so we kind of give them a pass in that way. But the truth is, is that if we read the... Now, it's much easier, hindsight being what it is. We read the, we read the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. We're like, well, why didn't they get this? Why didn't they understand this? Because in the Old Testament, it sort, of, it sort of tells us what kind of Messiah this Jesus is going to be. It shouldn't be so much of a surprise. But again, we had the privilege of having the whole canon of Scripture, right? And so we shouldn't hold it against them too much. But we see right here in the very beginning that this Jesus that is coming is not somebody who is just normal. He's not some sort of lunatic. Lunatics, there were many individuals that would come and that would spout off prophecy and they would spout all these, these kind of messianic type things because these, some of these individuals, they knew the text as well. But none of them had somebody like John the Baptist preparing the way. And we find that that's exactly what John the Baptist is doing. John the Baptist, we find out here in the prologue, is laying the, the, the framework for who this Jesus is going to be. And so many people were enthralled in John the Baptist. In fact, John the Baptist had his own disciples. And many of them struggled with letting John the Baptist go and then turning and clinging to Jesus, right? No, John's, John's the guy who we're following, not this new guy. But John, the entire time, his entire life... Now, I should, I should say that we should take this as, a, as somewhat of a, of a message to what our life should be. John's entire life was providentially, providentially placed and geared and designed to prepare the way for Christ. That was his whole mission was to prepare the way for Jesus. Why was John born? To prepare the way for Christ. Now I'm just going to kind of give you a little bit of, we're going to kind of go to the, jump to the end of the story. That begs the question, why were you and I created? Well, if John the Baptist was created to prepare the way for Christ, we were created to live, glorify, and follow Christ. That's why we were, we were created. We were not created to live this sort of haphazard life and then all of a sudden stumble into Jesus. We were created so that our very first cry was to exalt the name of Christ. I, I kid you not, when that baby is first born... He or she, that first cry that they emit from their lips is to exalt the name of Jesus. They may not know it, you may not understand it, but that is why they were created. In the mother's womb, 
as they are kicking and as they were wrestling and all of those things in the mother's womb, they are kicking and wrestling in the praise of Christ. Because that is why we were created. Everything that we do ought to go for the glory of Jesus. And that is what John is doing here. John was not ministering in order to make a name for himself. John was not ministering in order to prepare a way for himself. He was preparing a way for the one who would come. So let's jump in here with Mark chapter 1, verse 1. In this prologue, John the Baptist prepares the way for Jesus or the preparation for Christ. It says here, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark makes no bones about it right there in the very beginning. This, what I'm getting right, ready to write to you, is the good news. It is the, it is the good news of of Jesus Christ. And who is this Jesus? He's the Son of God. In the very beginning of this prologue, he's not trying to... Here's the thing. John's not trying to provide these secrets and like these twists for us to get into. He comes right out in the very beginning and says, this is who Jesus is. He claims divinity for Christ in the very beginning. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. Now this is from Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3, and it also ties into Malachi chapter 3 verse 1. It says, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Make his path straight. Now I love that line. Here is John the Baptist. He is coming forth his entire life geared and created in order to prepare, for, prepare the way of the Messiah. What a responsibility. What a responsibility that John the Baptist has been given to prepare the way for Jesus. Now, you know, there would be some today that if you were given that task, we would kind of like straighten our three-piece suit. We'd shine our shoes and say, I have been chosen to prepare the way. We'd make it about us. We're really good about that, right? We make it about us. And what does John the Baptist say? I'm not even unworthy. To, I'm, I'm, I'm not even worthy to tie his feet, tie his shoes on his feet, tie the sandals on his feet. I'm not even worthy to do that. Or in other words, I am not worthy to do the job of a slave. See, it was the slave's job to tie the laces on the sandal, and John the Baptist is saying, with, when Jesus is concerned, I'm not even worthy to do the work of a slave within, with concerns to Christ because he is highly exalted. He is, you may not see it yet, but he is highly exalted. Let's keep on going. This John the Baptist is a voice of one crying in the wilderness. See, the wilderness is like the ocean, is this chaotic thing. It brings us back to the Exodus as the people were leaving, uh, leaving Egypt and then they found themselves in the wilderness. Why were they in the wilderness for 40 years? Because of sin. And John the Baptist is saying, listen, I am crying out in the wilderness, in the midst of this fallen world, in the midst of this brokenness. You want a rescuer? I am preparing the way for the rescuer. The rescuer has come, and his name is Jesus Christ. Behold the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. 
He's preparing the way of the Lord, making his paths straight. What does that mean? It means, it says that the mountains, and if we look back in the Old Testament, it says the mountains will be made low, right? And it says the valleys will be risen. So the mountains are going to be made low. The valleys are going to be risen. There is going to be a highway made for our God. That's what it says in the Old Testament. What does that mean? Well, okay, so when, they, when you hear the phrase rolling out the red carpet, you get this red carpet, and that means that somebody important is getting ready to walk through, right? Today, we just think of celebrities. They're going to be walking right. Well, these are important people, so we roll out the red carpet. Folks, the red carpet is not being rolled out for Jesus. Mountains are being lowered for Christ. The valleys are being lifted up for Christ. It's more than a red carpet. The entire universe is being prepared for the coming of the King. That's how important Jesus is. For as important as our celebrities and our politicians and we think that we are, folks, I'm just going to tell you, no mountain is being lowered for you. No valley is being raised for you. Highways are not being created for your entrance. It makes me think of when a baby is due. When parents find that they're getting ready to give birth, what do they do? They, they prepare the way of the child, right? They prepare the way. They, they may dress up a new room and put a crib in there. They may do a paint job on the crib. They, they put these cute little pictures on the wall, you know, things like that. They buy toys for it. So when the baby comes, they buy toys that the kid can't even use yet. When we found out we were getting ready to have uh, Lucas... The first thing I wanted to do was buy him a fishing pole. And Crystal said, he's not going to be able to use it until he's like seven or eight. And I'm like, I just want to buy him. A, we're preparing the way for these kids. She didn't let me buy the fishing pole. I, you know, I just, I'm, I'm, I can't believe it. Anyway, I'm, I'm still hurt by this. So we're preparing the way. We're excited. And that's what John the Baptist is doing. That's what the whole universe is doing, preparing the way for this Christ. John appeared, verse 4, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, this baptism is not what cleanses us. This baptism is a symbolic gesture of how we are cleansed from our sin when we come to faith in Christ. And so, it, it, and basically, John is calling people to repentance, much like in Isaiah. So as we are walking through Isaiah on Wednesday nights, it's nice to read Isaiah along with the Gospels because Isaiah is doing what John is doing here. He is calling the nation of Israel to repentance, to turn from the wilderness and to cling to Christ, right? John is preparing the way. The first person who calls the people to repentance is not Jesus, it's John. John is preparing the people for this message of repentance and belief, and he's baptizing them in order to symbolize this. Verse 5, And all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Folks, the river Jordan does not have magic waters. I hear of all these individuals when they say, I was baptized, and I was baptized in the River Jordan, as if it's like magic water. Folks, they were baptized in the River Jordan because that was the river. 
So when you all get back, Isaiah, Isaiah, where you, when you get baptized in the spring, you can tell people, I got baptized in the Elkhorn Creek. Same thing, folks, okay? All right, it's not magic, but that's the water that was there. He was baptizing them in the River Jordan. The important thing to note in verse 5 is that people were responding to John. They were responding to this call of repentance. Now Mark describes John a little bit. So let's, let's look at this description in verse 6. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. That was John the Baptist. Now I bet you that some of these individuals that were coming out of the Galilee and Judea to see John the Baptist were not coming out of the, were not coming out of the woodwork to necessarily hear his message. They were coming out of the woodwork because everybody's saying, there's a crazy dude. There's a crazy dude out here, and he is speaking in a way that reminds you of Elijah. That's who he sounds like. He sounds like the prophets, like Isaiah and Elijah and Samuel and other prophets. He sounds a little like Jeremiah. He's dressed kind of funny. He's eating weird things. Who is it? Let's go see, right? Because we all like that show. Uh, Crystal and I and the kids, we all went to the zoo yesterday, okay? It's the first nice day we've had. We went to the zoo, and all of Louisville was there, okay? Every bit of Louisville was there. And I told Crystal that going to the zoo is sort of like going to Walmart after 10 p.m. at night. I could sit on a bench and just watch people all day long because they come out of the woodwork when the zoo is open, all right? And so it's similar to this. They're like going to see, who is this guy that's going to Walmart at 10 o'clock? It's John the Baptist. We're going to figure it out, right? And so there's John the Baptist doing this. Now, there's an importance behind his clothes. John the Baptist is a prophet. In fact, I would argue, other than Christ, he is the last prophet that we see. And he is a prophet in the vein of Jeremiah and Elijah and Isaiah. He was dressed like this and acting this way, not for show. That's just who he was. That's who he was called to be. But it was God appointing this appropriately so that people would see him as a prophet and then they would hear his message. They would hear his message of repentance and belief. In verse 7, And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. Now, like I already told you, the untying of the sandal would have been the job of a slave or a servant. It was considered to be the most humble of jobs. Anything messing with the feet would have been a very humble act. And here's John saying, this guy that is coming, I am not worthy to even untie his sandals. He is that much greater than I am. And notice that John here, John not once is trying to point to himself. He is trying to point to Jesus. I am preparing the way. I am baptizing. I am calling you to belief and repentance so that you will be prepared for the one who is coming. Because there is one who is coming, and he is greater than I. And he says, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now this baptism, if you will, 
of repentance. It says up here that John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance. We might think that John was baptizing, telling people that they were baptized for salvation, that the baptism equated to salvation. That's not what that phrase means. The better way of saying it is that baptism is based on repentance, that we repent and believe, and baptism is the symbolic gesture to demonstrate, to publicly proclaim our faith. Recently in the news, you may have seen this, where a small town, I believe out west, there was a Catholic priest who for many, many years had been baptizing individuals, but as he was baptizing them, he used one wrong word. One wrong word. And the archdiocese has said, because he used one wrong word in the act of baptism, that these thousands of baptisms that he had performed over the year or over the years are no longer valid. They're no longer valid because he used one wrong word in the incantation, if you will. Now we hear that and we're like, that sounds crazy. And the reason we say it sounds crazy is because we know baptism is merely a symbol. Baptism does not save you. All right? And that's with due respect to our brothers and sisters in the Christian church and other Protestant denominations who believe that we must be baptized in order to be saved. The Bible is very clear that, the bapti- that baptism is to be equated to circumcision, that circumcision does not save us. Unless, it, unless we are talking about circumcision of the heart. Baptism is merely a symbol. So it's this baptism that's based on repentance. What was happening? These people were coming out and they were listening to the good news that John was declaring concerning Jesus Christ, the one who was coming. They believed based upon faith that was given to them by God and they repented, turning from their sin of unbelief to belief in Christ and they were saved. And because of that, John baptized them, fully immersed in the River Jordan. And then they were became disciples of John and then of Jesus Christ. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? It means that John's baptism is really symbolic. It's really symbolic. But when Christ saves us, when we are redeemed, we are then filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, this baptism of the Holy Spirit, I don't want us to get confused. I don't want us to get confused. I want us to understand that the baptism of the Holy Spirit, all that means is regeneration. It, is, it means that we have been converted, we have been regenerated, and that the Holy Spirit fills us. And often the phrase that we use in order to uh, describe that is baptism of the Holy Spirit. It is not some sort of special second blessing that occurs after salvation that allows us to speak in tongues. Speaking in tongues is not a sign necessarily that you have been filled with the Holy Spirit. What this means is, is that John does not have the power to save. It's Jesus who has the power to save. That's what this line means. And that John is just purely, is merely preparing the way. Now, how should we take that? Is John's message to us in this passage relevant to us today? It is. 
every time the gospel is preached, is taught, is read, it is pointing us to someone greater than we. Someone greater than we could ever imagine. Whose sandal we are unworthy to untie. Yet Christ calls us to Himself. And Christ is washing feet. Christ is doing the job of a servant. Christ is doing the job of a slave. Because Christ, this Messiah that we see in the text, is something that we can, could never imagine if we were writing the story on our own. And this Christ is beckoning you and I today. Point two, the baptism of Jesus. The second part of the prologue. It says in verse 9, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of, Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now, I'm going to pause right there for a minute because remember, Mark, as he's writing, he leaves out a lot of details, okay? Because Mark is moving really, really fast through here. Something that I did not say last week that I want to say this week is that Mark was utilized by both Luke and Matthew as they were writing their Gospels. So as they were writing their Gospels, many people will, will, look, at the, will look at Matthew and Luke and say, man, it looks really similar to Mark. Well, there's a reason. Mark, the gospel according to Mark, was floating around out there during this time. People knew about that gospel, and they were using it as a reference to what was happening. I mean, some of the language is exact verbatim of what Mark writes. And so what we see in Matthew and in Luke is that when Jesus comes to be baptized, John says, wait a minute, I've just said that I'm not worthy to untie your sandals. I definitely don't need to be baptizing you. You need to be baptizing me. And Jesus says, no, this is done in order to fulfill all righteousness. Now, what does Jesus mean by that? What he means is, is that this baptism is an inauguration of his ministry. It's an inauguration. It's pointing to, see, here's the thing. When we are baptized... It is symbolic as we go under the water that we are dying to sin and being raised to new life. That's what it's symbolic for, for us. We are dying to our sin and being raised to new life free of the guilt of sin, free of the penalty of sin. Well, what does it mean for Jesus? Because Jesus is doing the same thing. It's the same symbol. Jesus is going under the water, representing death, and coming up, representing new life. Well, it's very similar, but there's one caveat. When Jesus goes under the water, it is foreshadowing what is to come. Jesus is dying to sin, but not his own. He's dying to your all sin. He's dying for my sin. And so as he goes under the water, he's just saying, folks, this is getting ready to happen, but for real. This is pointing to something that is going to be happening in about three years. And it's not going to be water I'm going to be entering. It's going to be a tomb. And it's not going to be symbolic of death. It's going to be actual death. And I am dying for sin, but it's not my sin. It's your sin. And when I get raised to new life, it's not symbolic new life. I am being raised to actual life. The Spirit is going to raise me from the tomb. And I must do this because it inaugurates my ministry and it helps to fulfill all righteousness because if Christ does not die and is not raised to new life, then we are not saved. We are not proclaimed righteous 
because of Christ's righteousness. So he's baptized by John in the Jordan, and when he came, comes out of the when he came out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open, and the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, "You are my beloved Son; with you, I am well pleased." Now, like I told you, from the very first verse of Mark where he calls Jesus the Son of God, here is your second sign that Jesus is being, uh, being, being labeled with div- divine attributes. When he comes out of the water, folks, when we come out of the water, we come out of the water and we're wet and we're probably smiling, right? Because we've just been baptized and we know symbolically what that means and people clap and all that sort of thing. Can you imagine that as Christ rises out of the water, the heavens are torn open like the veil, and the Spirit of God, like a dove, not a dove, but like a dove, descends upon Christ. And a voice from heaven, the Father, says, You are my Son, in you I am well pleased. How many sons and daughters, but how many sons living today wish that they could have heard their fathers tell them, you are my son, and in you I am well pleased. In you I am well pleased. We have so many children today that have gone fatherless. And if we look at statistics, it's wrecking the homes. Fatherlessness is wrecking homes. Now, praise God for strong mothers who are rearing children in single mother homes. All right, I praise God for them. We pray for them. We want to. In fact, we're called to help them. We're called to serve them in any way that we can. But how many children today would love to hear their father say, Well done. You are my son, and I am pleased in you. Many, many, many. Well, here's the thing. I think this is pointing to something else. Is that as individuals turn their lives over to Christ, as they are saved by the blood of Jesus, we are no longer orphans anymore. We now have a Father, a Father in heaven, that looks down and says, you are my son. We are no longer fatherless anymore. You are sons and daughters of the King. You are brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ himself through adoption, through the shed blood of Christ. There are so many of these children out there that are hurting Because of a lack of fatherhood in their lives. And I want to say, turn your life over to Christ. Because that's a father that will never leave you. And he will never forsake you. He looks upon Jesus 
And he claims Christ as his own. He says this, he is authenticating is what's going on. He's authenticating the ministry that is about to happen. You are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And final point, we look at the temptation of Jesus. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Now this is an odd conclusion to the prologue. And it's sort of an odd inauguration, if you will, to the ministry of Christ that this happens at the end. And, and sometimes I think we wonder, why was this even here? Why, why is this section here? Why? Because it says here, the Spirit immediately drove him. Jesus did not like come up out of the water, drive off, dry off, get something good to eat, because you know when you're getting ready to fast, you got to eat a lot, right? So it can sustain you, right? And then go out. No, he comes out of the water and immediately the Spirit of God drives him into the wilderness. Why? What's the point? Was the point to test? Did the Spirit of God need to test Jesus for his own sake? I don't think so. I think the Spirit of God knew exactly who this Jesus was and exactly what was going to happen. You know why? Because the Spirit of God is God. All right. So he wasn't like, like, oh my gosh, this Jesus really is the Jesus that we were looking for. No, he knew it. He knew it. Oh, because Jesus was going to be the one sending the Spirit, right? So what is the purpose of this? I believe the purpose is for you and I. To see that Jesus was tempted by the same things that you and I are tempted with every single day. He was tempted by Satan. Remember that story in Matthew chapter 4. That Jesus was driven out into the wilderness by the Spirit. And, the, and then Satan tempts him with what? He tempts him with food. First, you're hungry. You've been fasting. Here's a little Caesar's pizza. Right? It probably wasn't that. But you get the idea. Okay? And Jesus is like, no. Because the Bible says I'm going to live by the bread of God. The Word of God alone. I'm paraphrasing. And then he tempts him, he says, I'll tell you what, leap off this mountain. Leap off this mountain and you will be caught by, by eagles' wings, right? They will catch you and they will carry you off. It's like, I'm not going to test God. I am not going to test God. He goes back to the Scripture every single time. And finally, Satan does this. Now, folks, I believe the first one, well, I don't know. I'd probably eat the Little Caesars pizza. But <laughs> I'm just being honest. I like to eat. And um, the second one, you know, being tempted to jump. I'm not jumping off a cliff. I don't care, okay? You can push me off if you want. I'm not jumping, all right? But the third one, if you bring me up to that mountain and you show me all the kingdoms, sort of like Simba's dad in The Lion King saying, Simba, everything that the sun touches is yours. Only in a James Earl Jones voice. That's what Satan was doing. He's like, if you worship me, everything here is yours. I will worship God alone. Because everything that you see is already mine. It's not yours, Satan. It's mine. Now, Satan knew that. Satan's not ignorant. He knew that. And Jesus knew that. And the Spirit knew that. But do we know that? Do we understand that everything that the Son touches is His? 
We were talking earlier about going to St. Louis and climbing up into the arch, right, that Brittany's really excited about. She wants to get up there and feel the arch moving like this, right, Really excited. She's about ready to vomit right now just thinking about it, okay? But you go up into the arch, and the arch kind of sways as you get up there. Now, why on earth anybody would want to do that? I have no idea. Look at it on YouTube. But anyway, get up to the arch and look out, and you see everything that you see. Everything that you see is God's. Everything that you see is Christ. He's the ruler over all things. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him, were caring for him. And we know that eventually Satan flees, Jesus is cared for, and then his ministry begins. What we're going to see in the Gospel of Mark is that Jesus is the Son of God, the suffering Son of Man, who gives his life for the wretched and lowly, for you and I. And he's calling us to repent and to believe. You don't have to work anymore. You don't have to work anymore. You do not have to work and toil and be burdened by these laws and these restrictions anymore because they've all been fulfilled by me. I'm just asking you to repent and believe. One of the things that I love about the Gospels, but specifically the Gospel of Mark, is that Mark uncomplicates what we complicate. Now what do I mean by that as we close? I find it troubling at times when we talk about the gospel and we talk about salvation and I'm guilty of this too and we have we talk about all these theological principles and there's books written about them and all this kind of stuff and and all these ways like how we are saved and like what is the process of salvation you know like is there some biological process is there some supernatural process is it some sort of metaphysical thing that occurs when we're saved and there's books written about it and all these things and then somebody from the outside looks at the gospel and looks at all these these systematic theologies written about the gospel and you're like man the gospel's really complicated why because we have a tendency to complicate the gospel just like the israelites had a tendency to complicate the law God gave us the law, and folks, Leviticus is complicated enough. What do we do? Oh, it's not complicated enough. Let's complicate it some more, right? It's sort of like the tax code, right? It's like one of our legislators getting the tax code and reading all 10,000 pages and saying, I think we could use a couple thousand more pages. Let's complicate it some more. The Gospels uncomplicate what we complicate. We can talk about theology and doctrine all day long, but in the end, what does Jesus say? Repent and believe. Repent and believe. And really, the rest of the gospel, 
fleshes that out and what it looks like. What does it truly look like to repent and believe? And that's what we're going to see. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word and your truth. Thank you for this blessed gospel. And Father, I ask that we would repent and believe. And Father, if we are believers in here, and I trust that most, if, if not all of us are, I pray that repentance is not something that we think of as a one moment in life thing, but that we understand that repentance is a daily activity. We are constantly turning from our sin. We're constantly turning to Christ. And so I would ask that you would help us with that. Father, help our unbelief. We love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.